0: The verses read at the beginning of our service tonight are some of the most familiar in the Bible, particularly those who are acquainted with the book of Acts and who have heard gospel preaching through the years. Yet in spite of the familiarity of this passage, I have no apology for discussing it again because I think it sets forth some things that all of us can do well to think about and to study about. First of all, I think it's interesting that we have here the case of the conversion of the preaching to a human. There's an interesting study of this against the background of the Old Testament. Judaism being uh, physical and temporal as it was placed certain restrictions upon those where there was any physical blemish. There, Privileges and their approaches to the temple and the worship of the temple was only on a limited arrangement. I suspect that this is one of the reasons that we have the account of conversion of this man. It is to emphasize that the gospel of Christ is spiritual in its nature, that physical characteristics and qualities have nothing to do with one being subject to the gospel of Christ, and all the privileges and the blessings of the gospel of Christ extended to any man, regardless of who he may be. But you know, there are some interesting uh, things said at least uh, in one or two places in the Old Testament concerning a eunuch. For example, in the 38th chapter of the book of uh, Jeremiah, We have the account of uh, when Jeremiah had been condemned to be placed in uh, prison, and because they had accused him of uh, treason toward the nation of Israel, because of their sins, Jeremiah had said that they were going into captivity. And uh, in Jeremiah uh, 38, in the first part of that chapter, Jeremiah reminds them that they're going into Babylonian captivity in spite of all that they can do. But some of the princes uh, said that he was weakening their hands of war and that Jeremiah ought to die. Zedekiah said that there was not anything that he could do and that they could go ahead and uh, put him to death. And so Jeremiah was placed in a dungeon. And then we read these interesting verses, beginning in verse 7 of Jeremiah 38. Now when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spoke to the king's saying. My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took men with him, and went to the house of the king under the treasure, and took thence old cast, clouts and old rotten rags, and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And he bade Melech be the Ethiopian and said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast, clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes and under the cords, and Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with the cords and took him up out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the press. I think it's interesting that when Jeremiah had been condemned to death by some of those who no longer believed in God and had turned aside from God, that it was an Ethiopian eunuch that saved him from death in that dungeon or in that uh, well. But then again, in the very next chapter, there are some interesting statements made in reference to God's attitude toward that. In chapter 39, beginning in verse 15, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while we shut it in the court of the prison, saying, Go speak to Ephed Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished, accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given in the hands of men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee. And thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel Particularly, Judah had forgotten about God, had turned against one of the prophets of God, and had said that he must die, that it was a unit from Ethiopia that had placed his trust in God, and that saved Jeremiah from being killed at that time. And then in Psalm 68 and verse 31 The psalmist said, Princess, shall come out of Ethiopia. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out his hands unto God. So this will give us some background, I think, of the things that are said in this chapter concerning this man. There are a number of things that are suggested in the chapter that I want us to think about tonight. Number one, here was a man that was reading the Bible. And I'll stop and raise the question. Do you still read the Bible? Here's a man that was reading and meditating. And I think it's important not only that we read the Bible, but that we take the time to meditate upon it. What do you read? What have you read this past week? I think one of the unfortunate things about television is that it takes up so much of our time that we have very little time to read anything and perhaps least of all read the Bible. How much time did each one of us spend in reading the Bible this past week? Think about the situation that this man was in, one lacking in privileges that other Jews enjoyed at the time. And yet we find him, even though he lacked privileges that other Jews had, of reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament, pondering, meditating. How much time do I give to just reading the Bible and thinking about? What is that saying? What does that mean? And so I raise the question number one, do you read? Question number two, what do you read? Do I spend more time reading other things than I do the Bible? How many of us have ever read the Bible through? How many of us have ever read the New Testament through? How many of us have ever read uh, one book or more books of the New Testament in their entirety? I think when we begin to ask some questions along this line, it ought to make us think about how much we really think about the Bible. Do I appreciate the Bible when I read everything else and do not read the Bible? Do I appreciate the Bible when I have never read the Bible through? Do I appreciate the Bible when I do not take the Bible and just read an entire book? Sometimes you can read some of the books of the New Testament especially, all the way through at one sitting, and that's a good way to read the book. I read of a man who uh, had an unusual knowledge of the Bible. That before he began <coughs> to the study and the discussion of any book, he first sat it set, set down and read it through forty times. Just read it through and ignored all the chapter divisions and everything, just to read it through at one read. And therefore, we need to think about the eunuch reading his Bible. But not only do I raise the question, do we read the Bible, I raise the next question, do we understand what we read? You know, it's one thing to read the Bible, and it's another thing to understand. And uh, sometimes we get the idea that we, uh, we can't understand the Bible. I've had people to say, Well, I read the Bible, and I just become confused. The more I read it, the the less I know. Here was a man that was interested in understanding. He was not just reading. When Philip came to him and said, do you understand what you read? He said, no, I need some help. That's what I want to do. I want to understand it. And therefore, the importance not only of reading, but understanding what we read. That brings up some questions. How can I read the Bible and understand what I'm reading? There are some rules of interpretation that belong to Bible study. For example, Paul said to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, handling aright or rightly dividing the word of God. And therefore, there are some principles that are necessary for our understanding the Bible. If we <clears throat> have no method in our Bible study, we need not expect to understand it. Do I just pick up the Bible and let it fall open where it will, and then read a few verses here today, and tomorrow read elsewhere? If that's the method that I use, then I never will come to understand the Bible. We'll never understand any book that way. Suppose that you were going to study math, and today you picked up the math book and just let it uh, open anywhere, and then you began to read whatever's on that page. The next week you did the same thing, or the next day I did the same way, and it fell open in another place. How long would it take you to learn anything about math? And yet so many times is that not the method that we use in the study of the Bible. I raise the question, when you read the Bible, do you read it to understand it, and do you have a method that you use when you read the Bible? That's one of the things that I'm trying to do in the Sunday morning class, in the auditorium, is to encourage and help us realize that in order to understand the Bible, there are some methods and means that we need to use and without following these, we need not expect to understand the Bible. But also, there are some questions that one needs to ask. Just simple questions. For example, when you're reading the Bible, do you ever pause to say, Who's doing the talking? Who said that? There are some things in the Bible that the devil says. Genesis 3, the devil said, Thou shalt not surely die. If I read that and just pay no attention to it, then I'll find a contradiction in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is an unusual book. And unless you're careful about reading the book of Ecclesiastes and raise the question, now who's doing the talking? And from what standpoint is he making these statements? The book of Ecclesiastes looks at life from different standpoints. For example... The book of Ecclesiastes begins by saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's not true. Somebody said, you mean to say that that in the Bible and that statement is not true? That's right. It depends upon how you're looking at life, whether or not that statement's made. When one looks at life only in relation to time, or under the sun, or as things that pertain to this life, then it is vanity. But from the Bible standpoint, life is not vanity, it's more than that. And thus Solomon, who is the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, approaches life from Different standpoints trying to find out what is the meaning of life? What is that to life? So it starts out from the standpoint of pleasure. And he just lives for pleasure. And when it's all over, he said, is this all that there is to life? If that's all there is to life, then it is, then. It's not worth living. It comes to an end and it has no meaning and purpose. Then he lives for material things. And then concludes that if life is just has to do with the material things of life, it's vanity. But life has to do with more than material things. And then if life has to do with only man's wisdom, human wisdom, it's vanity. You do not come to the real thrust and the emphasis and the full truth in the book of Ecclesiastes until you come to the end of the book. For Solomon said, For this is the whole duty of man. Reality says, For this is the whole of man. What is it to fear God and keep his commandments? It's then that life has meaning and purpose. And to the man that understands life from that standpoint, it's not vanity. Therefore, it's important in reading the book of Ecclesiastes, if you understand it, to raise some questions and ask, who's doing the talking? What's the standpoint? Is he looking at life and what is he saying? That's the reason that some read the book of Ecclesiastes and conclude that whenever a man dies, he's just like a dog. Well, that depends on how a man's looking at life. Men quit reading too quick. Whenever he reads the book of Ecclesiastes and concludes that a man doesn't have a soul, let him read only to get to the end of the book. Then hear Solomon say, "For this is the whole of man: fear God and keep His commandments, and life has meaning and purpose. And there's more to man than that." And so I raise the question then: When you read the Bible, do you read it to understand it? Do you take the time to try to find out how can I understand this and what will help me understand it? Who's doing the speaking? To whom is the statement made? There are statements made in the Bible that do not have any application to me. And yet they're in the Bible. I'm not about to build an ark or offer a sacrifice, use mechanical instruments of music, burn incense. And the reason I do not is I simply ask the question, to whom were these statements made? To read Psalms 150 and conclude that that's telling me to play upon a mechanical a musical instrument is to read the Bible without understanding and raising questions that will enable me to understand what the Bible teaches. Then not only that, the unit was reading from Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53 is a prophet. And so when Philip said, Understandest thou what thou readest? He said, How can I accept some man shall guide me? Now what do you mean by that? He didn't mean that just any ordinary man would guide him. Here was a prophecy in Isaiah 53, and he was wondering about what it meant. And when he said, How can I understand except some man shall guide me? he's talking about an inspired man. And that's what Philip was. Philip had received miraculous endowments and thereby inspired by the Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And being an inspired man, being able to preach down in Samaria as he had and perform miracles as he had back early in the chapter. He was an inspired man. And therefore, being an inspired man, he could interpret Isaiah 53 and show its fulfillment. I think that we need to learn some things concerning prophecy and the way to understand prophecy. Let me give you an example. Turn, for example, back to the third chapter of the book of Acts. And in the third chapter of the book of Acts, we have the apostle Peter, of The second recorded sermon that we have, beginning in verse 19, well, let's begin back up in verse 17. Now, brethren, I walk that through ignorance you did it, as did also your father. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. Now, why? Repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sin may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which, was, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the Father, The prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul that will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, and those that follow after, as many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets of the covenant which God made for thy father, saying unto Abraham, In thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. Under you, God first, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquity. Now turn back and read the first four verses of the second chapter of Acts, And you'll have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, Peter among them. And he quotes from Joel's prophecy, Joel 2.28 through 31. And so Peter was an inspired man, and being an inspired man, he was able to interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament and point out that they found their culmination and fulfillment in Christ. When somebody turns back to the Old Testament and begins to read about some of the prophecies back there concerning the nation of Israel, about their return from captivity and so on, and then say that that has reference to what's taking place over in Palestine today, they're not reading so as to understand. They are not applying the rules of proper Bible interpretation. If they'd simply turn to the New Testament and let it inspired men interpret these prophets that understand the meaning of it. And so, not only do we need to read the Bible, we need to read to understand it. When you come across something and say, well, now what does that mean? Number one, do you look at it? in the light of the overall teaching of the Bible. There is a unity and a theme that runs all the way through the Bible, and there are no contradictions. And therefore, an interpretation that's placed on a passage needs to be in harmony with the general view of the Bible. In the second place, you need to ask, what is the purpose of the book in which I'm reading from? For example, when I'm reading the book of Acts, I need to ask the question, what is the purpose of this book? Well, the purpose of the book of Acts is to show how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Rome and left behind Judaism, separated from Judaism. Though the gospel had its roots in the Old Testament, as we've been studying in our Sunday morning class, That does not mean that the gospel and the church are identical with what's in the Old Testament. And thus the book of Acts shows how the gospel started in Jerusalem, just like Acts 1 and 8 says. And then it went down to Samaria, and then on out until finally it came to Rome. And when you come to Rome, you find Paul in prison. And you find Paul bidding goodbye to the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. Read the book of Acts, the twenty-eighth chapter, and see how Paul describes them as I there prophesied of, with their eyes closed and their ears stopped, and thus God is leaving them for the judgment that will come upon them upon that nation when Rome overran it. And he said, thus I turn to the Gentiles in proclaiming salvation of the Gentiles. So you need to raise the question, what is the purpose of the book? Then you need to look at the context. As I've discussed Romans, or rather Romans 6 this morning, I tried to look at Romans 6 in view of its place in the book itself and to see the significance of uh, baptism, as Paul appealed to it, but you can understand it only as you look at it in the context of the whole book. Then having looked at it in the context of the book, I tried to look at it in the statements that were made in the chapter, and that's the way that we come to understand what the Bible teaches. Now look at this, when you place an interpretation on a passage of scripture, that's is contradictory to the general teaching of the Bible. You can know that's false. It doesn't matter what it is. Whenever you place an interpretation upon a passage of Scripture that doesn't harmonize with the purpose of the book, there's something wrong with that interpretation. When you place an interpretation upon a passage that's not in harmony with the immediate context, there's something wrong with that interpretation. When you place an interpretation upon the passage that's not in harmony with the very words that's in the passage itself, there's something wrong with it. It's my firm conviction that whenever you place an interpretation upon a passage that harmonizes with all the Bible, it fits in with the general teaching and general theme of the Bible, it fits in with the purpose of the book, it fits the context, and it harmonizes with the words itself then you have an interpretation that's correct. i raise again the question. When we read the Bible, do we read it to understand it? Therefore, the importance of looking at some things that are important for us to know how to understand it. We ought not to be surprised if we just take our Bible up and read it, and then fail to understand it when we ignore the important rules of interpretation. But not only do we read the Bible to understand it, i raise the next question, do we believe what we understand? Now, stop and think about that. When I read my Bible and I understand what it says, do I believe what I've understood? Unity, he believed what he understood. And that's the purpose of my reading the Bible. It's not just to read it and then understand what it says, but to believe what I understand that it teaches. And uh, I wonder sometimes if that's the manner in which we read the Bible. Do we read it to know what it's saying, to understand what it's talking about, and to believe what it says when we read it? I'm afraid sometimes that when we read the Bible, we fail to place our confidence and trust in the things that are saved. You remember recently that I read a number of passages on a Sunday morning from the book of Psalms that emphasize the importance of trust. We need to read and reread the book of Psalms. So let it underscore that what we read that God says and God promises that we're willing to believe that. Not only that, sometimes we read the Bible, we understand what it says, but we say, I don't believe that. For example, you can read what the Bible says about how you become a Christian sometimes and ask people, do you understand what that says? The answer is yes. Do you believe then that this is what you must do in order to be saved? No, I don't believe that. And so one may read and understand and still not believe what he understands. But it doesn't profit one to read and to read aright, understand what he's reading, if he doesn't believe what he understands. The eunuch not only read, he understood and he believed what he understood whenever Philip, Philip preached to him. And so we read that, notice that the eunuch read, he understood, he believed, and then he confessed what he believed. Have you confessed what you believe? Have you read the Bible and come to understand what it teaches? And you say, I believe that, but have you ever confessed it? Listen to this passage. John 12, 42, there were many of the Jews that believed upon Christ, but they would not confess it. And so there were people that heard, they believed, they understood, but they wouldn't confess it. The reason was that they was afraid that they put out of the synagogue. There are many people like that. In fact, I've talked to people. I've known people that have told me that I have read the Bible and I understand what it teaches. I believe that this is what one must do to be saved. I believe this is the way that one must live to please God. And yet whenever I encourage them, why don't you confess that? They wouldn't do that. They refuse to confess what they believe. There have been those who have known what the Bible te- uh, taught, understood it as a result of reading it, said, I believed it, and have lived and gone into eternity without ever confessing what they believed. The eunuch didn't do that. Whenever the eunuch said, See, give it water what doth hinder me from being baptized, Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And then the eunuch confessed exactly what he believed. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what I believe. But not only did he confess what he believed, that he understood, that he read, but he obeyed what he confessed the record says that they stopped the chariot. They went down to the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized. And so, when having made that confession, he obeyed what that confession signified. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If so he is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. All authority had been given unto him in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Any soul that would not hearken to him be cut off from among the people. The passages I just read from Acts 3 and from Matthew 18. Or rather, Deuteronomy 18. Matthew 17, Jesus, God said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear you hear him. And so he confessed what he believed and he obeyed what he confessed. Have you done that? When I confess that here is what the Bible says and what I believe then do I obey that. But then not only is that the case he rejoiced. He was happy because he read he understood he believed he confessed what he believed and he obeyed what he confessed. You know, sometimes people get mixed up with what they, their obedience and their confession. I've had people to say that I'm satisfied with my baptism when in reality what they confessed was, before they were baptized, was that Jesus, they believed that Christ for God's sake had uh, forgiven their sins. All right. If they had uh, their confession was wrong, their faith was wrong. If they believed that God pardoned them first, then they didn't believe what the Scripture said. Because uh, Mark sixteen says, "He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved." Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Act two thirty eight. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Act twenty two sixteen. Baptism doth also now save us. First Peter three twenty one. And so whenever a person then has obeyed something and said, But I am satisfied in that I have been immersed. But was their obedience in harmony with our confession? And was their confession in harmony with the faith that rests upon the Bible that understands the truth? If not, then such is not acceptable obedience. Then having done so... The eunuch rejoiced. You know, I think it's unfortunate so many times that those of us who are Christians do not realize how much we have, have to be happy about. It. God's people ought to be the happiest people in this world. Is there anybody that enjoys life more than you do? Is there some anyone that gets more out of life than I do? In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, and that more abundantly. Of all the people that's in this world that ought to be living life at its best, it's God's people. And we can do that whenever we understand and appreciate the truth as the unit be. Think about this man. Having been all the way up to Jerusalem to worship God, with a system that would be enough, having lived with the limitations that it placed upon him at that time, and then coming to the knowledge and the understanding of the truth as he did, is it any wonder that he went home a happy man? for the greatest privilege in all the world had become his, the greatest blessings in all life were his. He had the forgiveness of his sins. Are you in the audience tonight? You've been reading your Bible. You understood what you read. You believe what you read. Are you willing to confess it this night and then upon that confession obey it that you may live as the unit did, happy, rejoicing, because you have the forgiveness of your sins? And you have the promise of God as your father, Jesus Christ as your elder brother, and the promise of that life that lies beyond this, that's more than 10,000 worlds like this. You're in the audience tonight, and like the eunuch has been reading, understanding, believing, will you not confess it, and then obey it? Fire together, we stand and say it.